Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here's the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Jennifer and Kelia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, a podcast where we, Jennifer and, and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today, we will be discussing the 1996 novel Fight Club, which became the 1999 film by the same name. But first, we are going to tell you all the ways you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a web page where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And we are on Goodreads. So no matter how you do the social media thing, you can connect to us. And of course, you're welcome to email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And we want to really encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. As always, we want to thank our Patreons for their ongoing support. We have a supplemental episode coming your direction in the next few days, so keep an eye on your email. And if you have not become a patron, it's never too late. $1 a month or 5 if you're feeling especially generous gets you early access to our podcast and supplemental episodes. And now, on with the show. So, how did you come to this novel? Well, I came to the movie first, because in 1999, I was 18 years old, and mm. we saw it in the theater. Me, and my fiancé, and my best friend, who was a guy. So, me and two dudes saw this movie in the theater, on the recommendation of my best friend, who was like, I'm pretty sure he had seen it, because he seemed to know, and he was like, You're, this is the, this is mind-blowing, we have to go see this movie, and so we went and saw it. Either that or I'm misremembering it. 
And my husband, my ex-husband, then fiance, was the one who was like, oh my god, we have to see this movie. I, I don't really remember, because we saw a bunch of movies around that time that had similar things where we were, like, unsure about what we were going to be watching. Not that the, the movies themselves were at all similar, but, like, we had a similar theme with American... Um, American Beauty. Yes. And, yeah, some other yeah. stuff. It was actually a really good year for movies. Yeah. Yeah. So we did see a lot of movies that year. Anyways, okay, so I can't remember exactly because this was a long time ago, but I do, I, I do remember that like, it stuck with us. Like it was a major thing. It was, we talked about it a lot. We eventually yeah. owned it, you know, all this stuff. And then years later, I realized somehow that it was based on a book and read the book and was kind of okay, had a different opinion about the story and the characters when reading the book, and had matured a little bit, and then and changed my perception of the movie, and then recently, reading the book and watching the movie, feel differently about it again. So, Hmm. yeah. Yeah, I have to admit to much of the same, is as I've matured, my feelings on this have definitely changed. Right. And def- I mean, we're going to get into it, but the, the idea of it being time and place of where it was, it's impossible to look at something almost in a vacuum because you can look at it and you go, okay, so this is the 90s. This was like reflecting ideas in the 90s and people in the 90s and yada, yada. But then we're reading it today and you're like, okay, but there's a lot of people today who who respond to this and still quote this and use this as a foundation for life. And, and I mean, I guess spoilers here, but the people who tend to do that are not in my friend group. Um, <laughs> well, okay, so we, we should probably save some of this, but it parts of it have become a cultural fossil. So even people who may not have seen the film, they'll know references to it. It's a little bit like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or The Princess Bride, and then right. you actually see the thing. Although I think that a lot of those those people who only know a little bit might only know the flashy quotable stuff and don't really know the point. Yeah. Cause I feel like the point is different from what gets quoted and people stop at the quotes or, Oh, it sounds so deep and, and, mm. you know, edgy. And they don't realize that, I mean, we're really jumping ahead, but real, that both the book and the movie are cautionary tales. Like don't do this. Like this is bad. This isn't good. But people don't get that, especially if only they're only seeing the memes and the quotes and, you know, it's getting touted as, like, this great philosophy for men. Just yeah. that, that's definitely... That well, that informs even today, like, going back and rereading the book and watching the movie, I was like, oh, my God, I remember this. Like, all these guys I knew were, like, super into it, and it had this negative message. And I kind, when I read the book, years after seeing the movie, I thought, oh, wait, that wasn't, that wasn't the message. The book and the movie had different messages. Going back and reading it now and seeing the movie, no, the messages are pretty similar. But I think that the book just did a better job of having the repercussions there. And I don't think the movie does as good of a job of narrating the message it's trying to show you. And, I, and so in that case, I think it kind of fails in what it was trying to do. There are two things. So one is kind of the making of a meme. The internet, is, I guess, seemed to rediscover the one of us chant. One of us, one of us, whenever somebody joins a fandom or something. But almost nobody's seen the actual movie. It comes from freaks. Mm. And so there's the memeing of a thing, even if you don't see the original thing. Yeah. Um, and the other one, and we should wait to get into this, but this is what I call the Scrooge effect. What do you remember Scrooge for? And what is the message of the story? They're two totally different things. 
Right, I see what you're saying, because yeah. to, to be the Scrooge character, like, now, don't yeah, be a Scrooge. Yeah, if you call somebody a Scrooge... You're referencing who he was at the beginning before yeah. he had his catharsis. Yeah, exactly. no, okay, I see, that's a good thing. Okay, so let's go ahead and do our <laughs> recap, and then... Yeah, because it's so easy to jump into the, the thing. All right, so I am going to gloss over quite a lot and just give more of a bare bones. And it's still going to be a lot, because there's a lot that goes on. Well, and the book is written in a narrative timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, in-and-out-of-fugue state, uh, just thought, stream of consciousness sort of way. So it's it would be difficult to just go and then in chapter one and then in chapter two. Yeah, and we might reference a few things that I don't go over in the summary, but the summary will give you an understanding of what happens, yep, and, then, and we then we can go into the specifics. Yep. Okay, so book plot. The narrator has no name, but fandom and author have accepted Jack as something to call him, so we're going to call him that. Jack works as a product recall specialist at a car company that is also unnamed. He's an actuary who calculates how expensive it would be to recall cars with safety issues versus paying out for injuries and deaths. It's all about the bottom line. Stressed by his job and jet lag, he starts having issues with insomnia. His doctor rather dismissively tells him to visit a support group for testicular cancer to see what real suffering is like. He goes to one, meets Bob, cries, and finds actual relief, which causes him to go to multiple support groups. He has a power animal. It is a penguin that says, slide. Well, no, I'm sorry. The penguin says, slide. <laughs> okay, that's cute. <laughs> well, at these support groups, another face keeps popping up. Marla Singer, a tourist who reflects his own falseness and insecurities at him and keeps him from crying. He confronts her, and they argue to split up the support group sessions. But the damage has been done. Jack's insomnia returns. Ian walks Tyler Durden on a nude beach. He's mysterious and charismatic. After an explosion destroys Jack's apartment, he asks to stay with Tyler. But Tyler has one condition. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. It's clumsy and cathartic. The two move in and start Fight Club. For you at home, you can say it along with me. Rule one, you don't talk about Fight Club. Rule two, you don't talk about Fight Club. Three, when someone says stop it or goes limp, the fight is over. Four, only two guys to a fight. Five, one fight at a time. Six, they fight without shirts or shoes. Seven, the fight goes on as long as they have to. Eight, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. We learn some backstory on Tyler. He has odd jobs and anarchist ways. In the house they stay in are Reader's Digest articles where organs write about themselves. I am Joe's liver. I am Joe's medulla oblongata. Jack gets a call from Marla when she notices he hasn't been showing up to the self-help groups anymore. She says she overdosed on Xanax. Tyler picks up the phone to hear her ranting and rescues her, thus beginning their affair. Since Jack never sees Marla or Tyler at the same time, he wonders if they're the same person. Ooh, the irony. Fight Club has expanded to multiple cities, so Tyler uses the club to start an anti-consumerist crusade called Project Mayhem. For funding, Project Mayhem begins gardening to make their own high-end soaps. The soap creation started with Tyler stealing Marla's mother's stored fat Marla left in the freezer for future lip injections. She gets very annoyed when she finds out all that fat has been used to make soap. New acolytes and Bob from Testicular Cancer join in the recruiting movement, similar to monks, who have to prove themselves dedicated. During this time, Jack gets Tyler's kiss, a chemical burn on the back of his hand. Jack's boss dies in an explosion, which Jack knows 
Tyler caused. Lots going on, and Project Mayhem pranks become increasingly elaborate and destructive. When Bob is killed during one of Project Mayhem's operations, Jack learns he is Tyler Durden. Oh my god. What a twist. Jack is the one having the affair with Marla. Jack is responsible for Project Mayhem. Jack blew up his own condo. Jack, while he thinks he's asleep, has been out taking odd jobs where he pees in soup and splices porn clips into children's films. It's all been Jack all along. Now that Jack has a, is sort of kind of in control, he tries to stop Tyler's plans to blow up a skyscraper, killing them both. But Tyler knows the narrator better than the narrator knows himself, and Project Mayhem is out to get him, at one point nearly cutting his testicles off on a bus. Jack gets to the roof of the building where Tyler holds him at gunpoint. Marla arrives with one of the support groups to save him. Tyler vanishes as a figment of Jack's imagination, and Jack waits for the bomb to explode. However, the bomb malfunctions because Tyler mixed paraffin into the explosives. Jack, now his own man and can make his own decisions, shoots himself in the face. He awakens in a mental hospital and talks with this therapist, who he thinks is God, and he is in heaven. Project Mayhem members approach Jack and whisper their plans to continue. They are waiting for Tyler to come back. End of book. So, movie plot. The movie starts with a man in a chair in what looks like an abandoned office with the gun in his mouth. How did he get here? Narrator asks himself. (laughs) Sometime before we see the narrator, henceforth known as Jack, living in a middle-class yet spiritually unfulfilled life. He works as a car recall specialist, a job he finds depressing. Stressed by his job and the unreality all all of his traveling causes, Jack develops insomnia. His doctor disinterestedly tells him to go to a support group to see what real pain is like. At a support group for testicular cancer, Jack finds emotional freedom and catharsis nesting into Bob's bitch tits, a condition caused by too much testosterone medication which increased the body's natural estrogen. But oh no, there's a tourist looking in Jack's multitude of support groups. Marla and her presence is calling out the lie Jack lives. He can no longer find comfort. His penguin power animal has turned into Marla. He calls her out and the two develop an uneasy truce to split up the support groups. On a flight home, Jack meets a soap salesman, Tyler Durden. They have a witty exchange, and when Jack returns home to find his condo is blown up, he calls Tyler. They meet at a bar, discuss consumerism, find out about Tyler's backstory of pranks, and Tyler asks for one favor. Hit me as hard as you can. The two move into an abandoned, probably condemned house in an industrial area and start Fight Club. The two are comfortable living together. One night, Marla calls, having overdosed on pills... Tyler picks up the phone, rescues her, and the two start an affair. Jack starts becoming increasingly dissatisfied as Marla and Tyler continue, only finding relief in Fight Club. Fight Club is growing, and Tyler takes on a new role as martyr by losing a fight and winning a victory for for Fight Club. Tyler um, ah. Tyler starts to recruit members for Project Mayhem. Project Mayhem begins with acts of vandalism which increase in violence. The violence culminates in the death of Robert Paulson, a.k.a. Bob. Tyler leaves. When Jack wakes next, he goes on a search for Tyler, which becomes increasingly disjointed and disturbing. A phone call from Marla cements everything. He is Tyler Durden. Jack tries to protect Marla and turn himself in, but the cops are all part of Project Mayhem. Jack escapes with his balls attached. Jack races to a building with a bomb in an attempt to stop Tyler. The two fight Jack blacks out and wakes with a gun in his mouth. Project Mayhem has brought Marla to the building. The narrator realizes that as he and Tyler are the same person, he is holding the gun. 
He fires it into his mouth, shooting through his cheek, and Tyler collapses. Holding hands, the narrator and Marla watch as explosive detonate collapsing buildings all around them. The pixies, come on, the end. <laughs> yes. Sort of the blessing and the curse of doing something that is so popular and has been around for 20 years is that there is so much information, so many essays, so many people writing, so many book versus film things yeah. already done. Uh, There's tons of theories. Tons of stuff. So uh, we could spend the next two to three hours probably just, you know, sur- summarizing all the different web pages and stuff. So I don't know. How do you want to even <laughs> well, tackle this? I'm going to start with one thing of saying it's okay to have multiple ideas, multiple philosophies, theories about what happens. I don't want to say that we have the definitive version uh, because it's the anything that's ambiguous, it's done well, will have multiple interpretations. Right. And I think it's also maybe important to acknowledge the death of the author idea. Mm. The author has created a thing and then the thing kind of lives in its own world. And the author can come and say, well, that's not really what I meant. Or that's, that is what I meant. And to a certain extent, yes, we have to take that under advisement. But then we can also say sometimes things kind of outlive the author and outlive the author's intent, especially if the author's writing about a time period and a group of people. And then later on, those ideas are co-opted by other people. It would be remiss to not acknowledge that the ideas have been co-opted by other people that maybe the author is or is not aligned with himself. Okay, so just a quick note on this. Uh, So I do have the DVD version, and there is an audio commentary with uh, Palinuk. And so there's a really great bit of irony where he's watching Jack lose control of Project Mayhem. And he said, you know, it's a lot like writing a book where I'll have people come to me with all these theories and all this stuff. And the words of my book have outlived me and I am no longer in control of this. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a cool bit of irony. Yes, definitely. Acknowledging that though, (laughs) I feel like if you create a work of art and then it's co-opted by evil people and used for evil purposes, I personally think that you as the artist might have a little bit of responsibility where you need to stand up and say, that's not actually what I meant guys. And if you don't, say, that's not what I meant, guys. I feel like you're tacitly condoning people taking your stuff to bad places and using it for bad things. Um, I kind of go on the red pill term with this, where the people of the Matrix, they never intended red pill to mean men's right activists, pickup artists, all that, you know, men going their own way crap. But that's what the, the red pills come to be known. And so there's only so much power you have. You can say, you know, this this isn't what I intend. But you could say that. If you never say that, because, I mean, let's stop beating around the bush. MRA groups and incel groups and the alt-right has taken this book and said, this is great. This is exactly right. Women are shit. Men need to be primal. Blah, 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 blah. Burn it all down. Let's vote for people who want bad things to happen to people just to see what happens. Because we don't like society. We're angry. And we're gonna want to piss in everybody's Cheerios for the sake that we can. And they point to this book and they say, see, this is what Tyler Durden's a god. This is exactly it. This is what we want. Blah, 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 blah. And I think, I think that that was not the point quite of the book or the movie that they, it was more, like I said before, like a cautionary thing. Like 
don't be like these. These people are mentally ill. These people are fucked up. This is like a guy who just discovered Nietzsche on his way to the coffee shop and had a bunch of ideas, you know, but he hasn't really thought any of them through. So don't, don't be like Tyler. And Tyler dies in the, in the book that our narrator Jack lives lives in a mental institution because he's scared to get out because he's scared of what will happen and in the movie tyler the god figure he dies so in both cases although differing degrees like it's not all rosy good i think that gosh something cat um so to have chuck polnick not come out and say hey men's rights groups that's not what i meant to have him be more like Yep, I coined the claim, you know, I coined the phrase snowflake and the left just needs to stop overreacting to things. And also poor men don't have enough books. And so I had to write a book for men, but I'm not, I'm, and then, and then not say anything else. I feel like that's tacitly condoning. And I mean, that's a different podcast, probably in a different topic, but I feel like you ha- it has to be at least, at least touched on here. Well, this that's why I mentioned Scrooge earlier, where the message of Scrooge is not how we remember Scrooge. We remember Scrooge the miser. If you're called a Scrooge, you're a miser. You're not the person who became something else. And the whole tragic backstory that he has, the whole thing that made him who he was is forgotten. So that's what bothers me about that. And then there's also the Lolita issue I have. And if we ever go through Lolita, I don't want to take away too much from that. But what people think of the term as Lolita is massively different than what was intended by the book. So how much, um, like, you know, Dickens isn't around during the day of social media to say, um, why are you guys remembering this and not that? You know, Nabokov, I don't know that he can go back and say, um, you guys, you're all, you're all remembering this massively differently. So, Polnick, I don't know. Um, is around and is doing question and answer things where yeah. he's like, oh, well, you know, poor men. And <laughs> let me write another book and just be as, as, as push all the boundaries that I possibly can for the sake of pushing them. And certain terms like toxic masculinity, this fits in perfectly, but it's like feminism. Feminism is a term that gets misinterpreted because people will hear it. They'll hear maybe a version of it, or they'll think they understand it from what they hear from popular culture, which wasn't, isn't what it is in academic terms where it was invented. So toxic masculinity isn't anti-masculinity at all. Masculinity is not a bad thing. Toxic masculinity is looking at the problems with the need to violence, which is what is presented in this. Well, or toxic masculinity as in it's toxic for men to have these patriarchal ideas that are, are actually detrimental to the health and well-being of both men and women. Yes. Yeah. So things like boys don't cry is a f- form of toxic masculinity because you're saying that boys can't cry because then they're weak because then they're like women. I'm not hurts everyone. It benefits no one. And it makes men feel like they should not be allowed to have emotions, which is unfair. So yeah, there's a lot of components of toxic masculinity, but we're seeing a lot of that come out right now when it comes to sexual harassment, rape culture, and as soon as people hear, oh, there's no such thing as rape culture, you're just, you know, putting down men and, you know, what do you expect when you do a certain thing? Men are supposed to act this way. No, you're not supposed to damage other people in your pursuit of being, you know, yourself and being masculine. Right. Exactly. 
I mean, so that gets, we can talk about that. I suppose we could start there with like the idea of masculinity as it's presented in this book. Because when it starts off, you have Bob, who is a fascinating character, and he's quite nurturing. Yes. Before we even meet Bob in the same thing, we're in the testicular cancer thing. So like this whole thing is that men can't be men anymore because they've had their balls removed, which first of all, going to go on record, balls don't make you man. Just going to say, you're allowed to be a man even if you don't have balls. Okay, now that we've said that. So you've got this support group of men who feel like they've lost their masculinity. The whole book is yeah, about there's, guys there's a, who are scared to be unmasculated. Yeah, there's and we a whole st- castrati. And so they're they're the literal castrati of our age. But there's like numerous times when they almost castrate people. Yes. Including narrator. Because that's the worst thing possible is to have your balls taken away from you. Because that would make you... A woman, according to this book. Okay. Then, in the movie, they did a really good job of this, too, because they start off, and he's in the support group, and the guys are all sad. And then the guy who's sharing, this is our first real touch on the fact that women exist in this world, is this man complaining that his wife left him after he got cancer. Now, first off, I'm with you, guy. She's a bitch. She left you after you got cancer. I'm with you. That is a shitty thing to do. That, on the other hand, though, does not make all women bitches, first of all. And does not make you less of a man because you weren't able to give her biological children. Like, so I, what I feel like this sets up is this false dichotomy that I see throughout the entire book. Tyler's big on this. It's this or this, my way or the wrong way. And there's no room for middle ground. And I feel like it starts off very clear in in the movie as well. It's, I don't have my balls, therefore I am not a man and cannot provide biological children. And there we are. And that's the end. And then just almost to, to, to um, subvert that, we show we have Bob in the very next moment. Bob, who is this very hyper masculine man who was doing all of these, um, he was a bodybuilder, ex- yeah, yeah. A, a ch- exactly a bodybuilder guy and a juicer. And uh, and now he's got the breasts, like they call them bitch tits, which is like an awful, yeah, I know. awful. Both of us were just cringing at that. Oh my that, god, really. okay, of course, because again, now you can't if you have breasts, then you're obviously a female, you're obviously weak, and that's Bob. Bob is the nurturer, Bob is sweet, Bob is gentle, all of these things. And then Bob is ultimately killed because... Project Mayhem. Project Mayhem, but also, like, it could have been anybody, but it's Bob. It's Bob. And... Also, in the in the movie, when they're all showing up on the porch and they're, like, trying to get in to become part of this cult and whatever, um, the, the whole process is they go out and they tell you, you're too old, you're too fat, you're too young, whatever, and then if you can stand out there for three days, then you get in, right? So Bob shows up, and Tyler goes like, oh, no, you're too old, fat man, blah, blah, blah. And Bob starts to leave, and narrator goes, oh, no, Bob, and he explains so that Bob will stay. So, like, you you have this thing of this, this female, male character who needs help, right? Okay. And has to be rescued almost by the narrator, which adds to the guilt for then when Bob dies, because if the narrator hadn't said, oh, no, let me explain the rules of this to you so you'll understand and be able to participate. Okay. And then one other interesting thing about Bob, the rule of the fight club, I think it's which number? Is it five or six where you have to fight without shoes and a shirt? Yeah, he's the only one who gets to wear a shirt. Bob wears a shirt while he fights in fight club. And I thought, why? Is it because the breasts would be distracting? It's rule six. Rule six. Okay. Is it because the breasts would be distracting? Is it because 
That would like it's be shameful. an intru- it, it would it be too embarrassing for Bob is these female like pseudo female because they're not female but they're pseudo female but they would be intruding into this male space. I just or is it like too much of a distraction for the guys trying to fight somebody who has breasts? Because right, because there is, there, there is an exclusionary thing here. Oh, big time! This is only for men, yeah. right? And that that little aspect is so there are like three main female characters. Bob be kind of one of them, and then you have Marla and then Chloe. I so, would say Marla and Chloe. I don't know about well, Bob. I, I'm. I guess feminized characters because Marla okay, is yes. not a very femaleish character. She's a very masculine character in a lot of ways. <laughs> She's a masculine character in the social tropes that we don't uh, expect women to be assertive, bossy, and have autonomy. Yes, which in the case of this book in 1996 and the movie 1999 was definitely a thing. Well, you know, her masculine traits are that she doesn't take shit, that she calls bullshit out, that she's not afraid, and that she owns herself. Again, going on record, those are not inherently masculine things. A lot of women have that. But in the dichotomy of this book and film, no, we're definitely saying, oh, that's Marla's very masculine. And narrator's very feminine. The nesting. He's buying things. He's worried about his home. He's, you know, this, that, and the other. So, But you wanted to talk more about the other families, like Chloe. Well, like, Chloe's based on a real person that... Uh, Palahniuk knew. So a lot of Palahniuk's writing of this comes out of, uh, I guess it was called Dangerous Writing. It was mm-hmm. this group in Portland, and they were supposed to use personal experiences in creating their essays, articles, short stories, what have you. And so a lot of the things that happen in this are based on real life. So Marla overdosing on pills. That's something that happened to Palahniuk, where a friend's girlfriend was overdosing. He couldn't get to her. He called Palahniuk to go take care of him. Uh, Palahniuk was driving people to hospice and back. That's something he did for a while, and so he sat in on support groups. And for him, it was really devastating hearing these stories. Chloe is based on somebody who had breast cancer, and she died very quickly after finding it out. But... Part of toxic masculinity is being sexually aggressive. And that's what I thought was kind of interesting about Chloe is the whole Freudian sex and death dichotomy where she's like, I just want to have some, some personal interaction. I just want to, you know, be held like one last time and how sad and tragic that is and how much that is denied her because nobody wants to be near her. Yes. It, it, it is denied because she's a female, I will say. Because if she was a guy who just wanted to get laid, there are people. That, that's what sex workers are all about, right? She could pay someone to have sex. But a woman paying someone to have sex is a whole different kettle of fish. It's not nearly as, I'm going to say socially acceptable, even though you, with the caveat there. But also, Chloe's desperate. And her desperateness is what is the turnoff. As soon as she starts talking in this part, I just want to have sex. You know, the narrator can't even look up. He, he's looking down and all this stuff. At the same time, her, her main thing is Chloe's not afraid of death and she wants to get laid. That's who she is at the end. Marla, not afraid of death, doesn't really care about getting laid until she's getting laid. Then she wants to get laid. But she's not as desperate. She's broken in a different way. So somehow, like, that's okay. I, and she's... She is more reactionary to things, so she's not as forceful and she's not as clear about what she wants and doesn't want, at least at the beginning. She gets, she gets more that way, I think, as, as the thing goes. But so that's, I, 
I saw them as two sides of the same coin, well, Chloe and Marla. Chloe, we also tend to put people who have cancer, who are, are going through life-threatening illnesses, what have you, as almost angelic of, well, you're almost dead. You're, you're on a higher spiritual plane, and they're still people. They still want certain things. Mm-hmm. But that goes against the narrative that we have created about people who are you know, facing death. Like have, who have transcended the, the human needs and are better than that now or, or something like that. That just tends to be a, a cultural touchstone of, well, you're beyond sex at this point. You're, you're, you're thinking about life and death. All the things that are really important. Which whereas- is interesting because what you really have on these characters is the opposite of that, where they're like obsessed with death. They don't like, you know, the whole fear of death and having a near death experience, is like kind of what they want, but they're also mired in in that visceral life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, again, with the almost the false dichotomy stuff. Well, there's a lot of irony, and I don't know how much of it is deliberate. Like, one of them that, that struck me even when I was first watching this, our narrator has this thing, you know, to let doesn't matter truly slide. And yet they're, they're anti-consumerist, and yet they get so disciplined about their garden. Like, they know every single plant that's in there. They're making all these soaps. They are militaristic in their effort to do these things. And so they're not letting what doesn't matter slide. They're doing the exact opposite. So the, the problem with anarchy, the problem with authoritarianism, is eventually you eat yourself. Mm-hmm. If you ever look at studies on authoritarianism, and there's some really fantastic ones out there, it gets narrower and narrower. You you start othering more and more groups until eventually your group dies out. So this is this is a thing, uh-huh. <laughs> and that's that's Fight Club. They're they're killing themselves. It is a self destructive thing that you're doing, and to not acknowledge, you know, this is this is Scrooge. Scrooge is is destroying himself, and you know, this is where we try to become enlightened. Fight Club, you're destroying yourselves. This is not the the way you're supposed to be. This is not how you you become more spiritual or find happiness. Right. But that's Tyler's way. So to do it yeah. the other way, it would be wrong. As Tyler says, um, self-improvement is masturbation. And I thought, is it? I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I, that sounds very profound, but I, no. It's, it's the self-destructive <laughs> id that he has. Yeah. And that's a lot of the things with Tyler is he says these things and, and it sounds good. And you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you're distracted by the next thing. And then if you go back, you're like, wait a minute. Case in point, a major, major part of Tyler's thing. He says, hit me as hard as you can. What? Why? Well, because how much do you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? And then it moves on from that. And like, so, okay. And I'm like, wait, pause. I know a lot about myself. (laughs) I've never been in a fight. Well, (laughs) I've been beat up, but like, I mean, I'm just saying like, but that's such a weird place to put it. It's like, you could also say that with anything. You could say, how much do you know about yourself if you've never shot up heroin? How much do you know about yourself if you've never robbed a bank, Jennifer? I mean, like, we could think, pick anything. How much do you know about yourself and how you've had a threesome? I mean, it could be anything, is my point, right? How much do you really know about yourself? So it just, it's so random and arbitrary, right? I mm. feel like, but he has set up this dichotomy. The only way to know about yourself is to do this thing that I'm now telling you that you need to do. So, um, And there's not really a lot of room for anything else. On first blush, when you first watch the film, how charismatic was Tyler? Oh, incredibly charismatic. And that was the point. He was a charismatic leader. He's a freaking cult leader. Yeah, but I, I love that 
that scene in the airport, or not the airport, the scene in the airplane where they first like officially meet. And there are scenes with Tyler all through the background. So one of them I would have never noticed if I hadn't been watching one of the commentaries. Uh, Jack is at a hotel. He's watching the little video and there's all these waiters and they go, welcome. Tyler's in that video. He's off on the right. Huh. And so you don't even notice him because he's not the main figure on there. But there's lots of background Tyler's. Oh, yeah. And they blip. They they do the thing with the with the projection. They blip shots yeah. of Tyler and in early. about six of them. You know, and it's all very, you know, key important moments. And and then, like, you see him at the airport over the line. The, the voiceover is, if I wake up in another time, another place, could I be another person? As Tyler goes by on a moving mm-hmm. sidewalk. I mean, it's not subtle. It's not <laughs> subtle at all. Some and, of them are. Some of them are. I subtle. felt like, I, and see, this is the, I can't, you know, once you've seen a thing, you can never unsee it. So, like, you can't watch this movie now and not know that they're two different, you know, that they are the same person and that they're not two different people. So that, of course, colors everything you see. And I am trying to remember when I realized that when watching the movie. And I just can't remember. I don't remember if we, like, had a dawning realization or if it was a shock. I know some people were shocked. I just honestly don't remember. And in the book... It's so obvious so early, like it's not even trying. And then I thought the movie was going to be like, was going to be more subtle about it, but the movie's not really subtle either. Like it is so, it's so obvious that they're the multiple personalities until it's not. And, and, and I have this written down, like I feel like it's either because they make some choices in the movie that break the way that we understand multiple personality, you know, working. And so you're like, okay, well, are they, is it, is it subversive or are they just cheating? For example, um, when they get the police guy and they're going to drag him in the bathroom and threaten to cut off his balls if he continues trying to find fight clubs, blah, blah, blah. And the first time we see it, Edward Norton's character, the narrator's following the guys. Tyler's leaning over the police guy. Tyler's yelling at this guy and Jack it locks the door and is standing in the back watching yeah. this whole thing. Then later on when he's like, I'm actually Tyler. He now has the memory of leaning over the police commissioner, yelling at the police commissioner, being in that Tyler role. Fine. The question is then who locked the door? Oh yeah. Stuff like that. Or um, we have, it's, it's very common in multiple personality when people come in and out of a room. And we did that here. Like Marla and Tyler were never in the same room together, you know, and obviously all of this stuff. Cause because actually it wasn't really that Marlon and Tyler weren't in the same room together. It was that Edward Norton and Brad Pitt were never in the same room. Like the three of them were never in the same room. Except that we have Jack brushing his teeth and hearing Marla having sex with somebody in the other room. Now, if she's having sex with Tyler... I would have said that was dissociation. Well, okay, but like there's so many points of that. But it, it again, it, it's either... It's either trying really hard to make it so that we don't see it. It's, or, you know, it's it's subverting the idea of what we know about how the little pebbles of, not pebbles, the little breadcrumbs that we get along the way in a movie that tells us, like, gives us hints that this is going to be a multiple personality. They're, they're messing with them. And I feel like it, it almost gets into the cheating category for me personally. I was like, after watching it a couple more times, I'm like, they tried really hard to make this, to, to, to hide that at the same time while hitting you over the head that they were two, you know, they, they were not two separate people. I don't know. I, it was the twist worked for me the first time I watched it. I didn't see it coming. And there are a lot of times when there are little peppered in bits, like when he has the car accident, Edward Norton is pulled out of the driver's side, mm-hmm. you know, where Tyler was. So there, there are these little bits where you go, Oh, 
oh, I see that now. Or, you know, I know this because Tyler knows this. And then sometimes Tyler spoke for me. And then, you know, he's saying the words and he's saying the words and, you know, all, all of these kinds but of things. It's a great, yeah. So we were, you were just talking about the castration scene with the police officer where they don't, but it's a threat where there's Edward's face and he's the one staring at the camera. And then Tyler just kind of goes in right in front of him and starts speaking. So that's one of those really cool moments of, oh, this personality is now taking over for that. Mm-hmm. So th- there's- at the same time, we have Tyler and Marla having sex and then Jack opens the door and Tyler says to Jack, uh, you know, what are you doing? And they have a conversation with her in the room behind the bed, of course, like she's behind the bed. She can't see the two of them. And then he says, do you want to finish her off? And at first blush, you're like, oh, this is like two guys sharing a woman, whatever. But then you're like, is he offering to like seed control of the body at this point so that Jack could do it? Or is that just like pushing into Jack because he knows that Jack won't because Jack's not assertive enough I would yet. put the second one. So, uh, he's pushing Jack at times. Yeah, I just but it's interesting, right? Like, and that's one of those... Because that's the whole thing with Jack and Marla is that he is attracted to her. They are, in very many ways, the same kind of person, but he can't admit that. Mm-hmm. So when his condo breaks up, he originally tries to call Marla first and just can't. And there are times when uh, they have the argument about, well, we need to split these clubs up so we don't see each other. But he's still kind of pursuing her. He's still after her, and he doesn't want that connection to end. Yeah, he's the one who says we should exchange telephone numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, remember, magically, it's like one of the few things that doesn't get burnt in his apartment. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, yeah, he's always kind of wanting Marla, and then he's jealous that Tyler has her because he and Tyler have this kind of homoerotic thing going on. (laughs) There's a lot of Brad Pitt nudity. You know, he's got his full-on ass, you know, exposed at one point when he falls off the bicycle. It's like, wow, there there it is. There's everything. Yep. Hi there, Brad. (laughs) Okay, I had like three thoughts while you were talking, and now I'm, I feel like I'm going to lose them. I've, but just a quick Brad Pitt little bit of trivia. He told his parents not to watch this film. Yeah. And uh, they watched it up till the chemical burn part, and then they stopped. <laughs> um, in the DVD commentary, he says his mom was okay with the film because that wasn't Brad. He was actually playing Edward Norton's id, so uh-huh. she was kind of okay with it. Yeah. But there are there are a lot of background. Like I don't think the director, the writer, anybody wanted their parents to watch the film. Yeah, this I mean, the director also made Seven and The Game. Um, I think so. That's important to know. And um, God, Seven is it just made me feel dirty watching it. Like I just felt unclean and mm. and grossed out. And I definitely still feel that way about this movie too. A little bit. Like I just feel kind of bleh, a little icky. I, it was really well made. For sure. The cinematography is great. So you need some soap afterwards? Yeah, definitely. But um <laughs> Ugh. Okay, so speaking of soap, let's talk about another uh, difference in the book. We've got Marla's mom, who's a female character, who sends Marla... Marla's mom, who's obsessed with looking the right way, so all about the liposuction, and then sell, sends her liposuctioned fat to Marla so that someday Marla can use it to plump up her lips... Again, because this is what women do. We're destructive, but we're also trapped in a, Mm. you know, a bad system that tells us what we're supposed to look like and not. And then to, you know, subvert that and to break into that and and to destroy that. But also for his own gains, we're going to use this fat to sell soap, you know, make soap and then sell it back to the to the rich ladies. It's interesting you talk about Marla's destructiveness because the guys, they go out and fight each other. Marla overdoses on pills. It's very, very it's gendered. Very, it's internalized. 
Well, yes, but it's also pills are like the women's way of doing it. Like, and, and even she even says like it's a cry for help, and it's it, it's gendered. It's a gendered yeah trope that women take pills and then call for help and and stuff. Although a difference between the movie and the film is that in the movie. Our narrator picks up the phone, hears her, decides to just leave the phone and leaves. But in the book, he doesn't even answer the phone. Tyler's the one who answers the phone and does that. So it kind of takes that that onus of choice out a little bit. So that was an interesting change. Well, yeah. And so if we're speaking about ironies, there's, you know, being clean, that the soap is from human fat. Uh, The creation of soap and human sacrifice, it's supposed to be a Hindu legend. Mm. So human sacrifice, and that's how you get soap and you get really clean off of... What's kind yeah. of gross and dirty. Well, and again, like, Tyler doesn't really understand what he's spouting. He has this very romantic ideal about hunter-gatherer societies. Like, apparently, hunter-gatherers never fought or had war or, you know, anything like that. Because I, I, I'm assuming his thought is that it's just, well, hunters hunt and gatherers gather. And it's strict gender roles. And there we go. And everybody's happy and fine. And... I think he sees the brutishness that is part of that life and embraces it. That's his whole thing, is that life is brutish. Yes, that's part of it. But it's not like we're just hearkening back to gladiator times. Like, he's very, we're going to hunt elk in this, and we're going to, like, tear down society so that it can go back to this way that it used to be back when it was pure, and men were men, and women were women, and everybody knew their place, and blah, so one of the things that I read online um, was um, the impression we're left at the end of Fight Club is the rearrangement of Marla and Jack's masculine and feminine traits leads them to become better people. Marla, as the feminine woman, is more tender towards Jack and that's more appealing to him at the end. And Jack is more masculine and more confident towards Marla and thus appealing to her. This suggests that only through the proper alignment of masculine and feminine traits can one truly achieve good character and proper ethos. Oh, that's gross. While feminists and supporters have worked vigorously in an attempt to blur the lines of gender constructs, this movie despic- uh, shows that despite that progress made, they're still very apparent in modern culture and modern society. And I want to say, gag. <laughs> gag oh. me with a spoon. <laughs> I was doing that while you were talking about it. Right? <laughs> ah. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was when you were talking about the masculine, uh, Marla being masculine. It's like, yeah, kind of. But also... Well, I was talking with a friend about this because he's very analytical. I wanted to get his take on things. And so that was one of them of, well, I have to watch the movie again, of course. And then for him, Marla was the most masculine figure. It's interesting to listen to Helen Bonham Carter's narration of what she thought of the character because she does see her as very feminine. Mm -hmm. She does see her as being caring. Um, The whole thing with uh, checking do I have breast cancer is a way for her to reach out to Jack. And she's dealing with this guy who's being just a complete asshole and continuously forgiving him to a point. But she's she reaches out in a help me I'm in distress sort of way. Yeah. And Anne in a body, oh my breast can you, oh can you I mean, I, it's dangerous and sad, but also my breast. I'm yes. stroking myself as I look at you. Sorry, I couldn't help it. I, but like, do you know what I mean? And yes. then, I mean, with the, the bridesmaid dress, which also would have been better as a bride's dress because nobody loves. Oh my god, her whole little spiel. Somebody loved this dress for a day and then threw it away. You know, blah blah blah. And I was like, no, 
Bridesmaid dresses? Nope. No. Bride's dress? Sure. But a bride, I guarantee you, most people hate their brides with the dresses that they're forced to wear. I, for one, had like a graveyard of bridesmaid dresses. I would think a prom dress would have been a better... A prom dress would have been good, too. In the book, it talks about it was handmade, and there was like tiny stitches in the movie that was very much glossed over, which I thought was like kind of a... They could have really done something Okay, so we were talking about lines that stayed with us, and that... That scene had one of those lines that just kind of stuck with me, where she's talking about, you know, I'm going to say prom dresses because that's a better version of this, mm-hmm. uh, that people loved and then threw away. And she has this line about rape victims. And it, the way it's treated culturally and the way it actually is, there, there's this line where, you know, these girls were loved and then they were raped and then they were sort of just discarded by society or they're treated as less than in society. And that's one of those lines that stayed with me as just being painfully true in a lot of ways that are really ugly. Mm-hmm. And you said you had a line that you remembered and you were guaranteeing me that we did not remember the same so lines. So is that your line? That, that one was right the there? line that, that I, I was I was reading this during Christmas. I was working oh. at retail and so I would read the book during my Christmas break. So again, consumerism. I was selling <laughs> stupid ass mugs and calendars for a job. <laughs> Funny. And so during my break, okay, I'm going to read this anti-consumerism book. I was As- working in a bookstore when I... <laughs> When I saw this movie. That's funny. Okay, go ahead. So, yeah, I, I got to that line, and I had to stop for a minute and just put down the book and think about that line, because it hurt a little too much to read that. Yeah. No, um, not a line, a scene. A scene re- that I in the book stayed with me, and I was always very sad that they didn't have it in the movie. And that is when they meet. Now, I understand in the movie they have them meet on an airplane, and I get that it, it throws back into our narrator's travel and insomnia and also like the single so serving. So you wanted the nude beach? Hold on. Yes. <laughs> but not because of the nudity. But anyways, this, the idea of the single serving friend, but then Tyler breaks that mold. Like Tyler's different and like is challenging and assertive and also like kind of not caring and like all of that stuff. And that's a great scene when they meet on the plane. I'm not discounting it at all. I mean, it's got a lot of layers. First of all, like, well, I mean, the, the transfer of power. The transfer of power is amazing because the other time we see him, um, Edward Norton's character on a plane is when he's like giving, basically he's telling somebody about his job and the woman is horrified. You know what I mean? About like what the cars, you know, what company do you work for? A major one. So when he's talking to Tyler on the plane, like it's really well done. They have the matching case. Tyler doesn't care. Tyler makes and sells soap and he's got his hand. I mean, it's just, he's all flashy with his clothing. And then he, he doesn't want to sit in the emergency line, you know, area. He's going to move because he doesn't want that responsibility. And then he has this whole, like, a question of etiquette. Do I give you the ass or the crotch as I pass? He gives Edward Norton's character the ass, but then when he passes behind the stewardess of down the thing, he gives her the crotch. I mean, like, that is a great scene. Yeah. In the book, though, they meet on a beach. New beach, sure, whatever. But it's a beach because Edward Norton's character, Jack, has actually taken a vacation. He's trying to sleep, and he falls asleep and then he meets Tyler. So, like, like real obvious, like, if you're looking for the clues that he has fallen asleep and then Tyler is there. This is when Tyler is created. Tyler is this perfect man. So, that kind of ties into the nude beach part. Like, there's just, like, this Adonis and very blonde. The Ubermensch. The Uberman. Okay? He's very blonde. He's perfect. But then what is Tyler doing? Tyler's not interested in Jack. He's not paying any attention to Jack. Jack wakes up and he watches Tyler work. And Tyler is dragging these logs, these driftwood logs, and setting them up in the sand in this very meticulous, planned out way that doesn't make sense to anybody else except Tyler. Tyler has a plan. And then 
Tyler waits, and when the sun is just right, the shadows of these logs make a palm, and then he sits in the palm of, as he calls it, God. One shining moment of perfection. Like, he's worked all afternoon to make this one moment. He lived in that moment, knowing that it was fleeting. And then when it was over, it was over. And it wasn't sad that it was over. It just was. And I was like, this is a guy who can lead cults. Like, this is beautiful and amazing. And if he had stayed like that and didn't take it to that next level of extreme of we have to burn everything down and, you know, people are mm-hmm. like, let's be like, you're a butt wipe and I'm a butt wipe and let's destroy the Mona Lisa and all of this stuff like that. But the, how it started right there in this beautiful moment of time, working to create a moment of time, having this level of a plan that nobody else understands, like I thought that was great. I thought it was a great idea of Tyler, a great introduction. Also, we have the narrator who um, has a, a mark on his foot that he keeps hidden. It's a birthmark. And when he was in college in the book, this is a thing, they thought for like 15 minutes that he had this special kind of cancer. And he was incredibly important for 15 minutes. All these doctors were coming in and they were like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Blah, blah. And they had like ceased to think about him. They were all thinking about the cancer. Everybody was looking at his foot and he was special. And I thought that that was a really good scene because it kind of ties into the whole support you know, group stuff where he's going and people are like inherently more special because they're dying. And like that, that is like a thing, you know. And so... But when he's at the beach, he even says multiple times in the book, he hides that foot in the sand. He literally hides it in the sand so that it's not seen, so that it's private, because, like, it's this memory of when he was special. He hides that. It's not that that he was special. His cancer was special. His cancer was special. But for a second, he was, you know, like, if you do something special, then that makes you special. Or, you know, if you're part of something special, then you're special, too. And so, like, but he's hiding it in the sand, and then up from the sand pops up Tyler... Like this other version of himself who's perfect, you know, and who's going to do all of these things. And then again, it's like he isn't the cancer. He's not the special, but he's associated with the special. Like he's like the helper of founding Fight Club. He's with Tyler, but he isn't Tyler, except that he kind of is, you know, obviously at the end. So I just I thought, oh, my God, this scene is great. And I understand why they didn't put it in the movie. And I think what they did in the movie was great. Fine. But I, yeah, that was the scene that that, that would have been so scenes. hard to convey oh my in God. a movie. Totally, almost impossible because it's all internal. It is, yeah. and I get it. But the image in my head when I think of Fight Club and I think of Tyler Durden, I think of naked Brad Pitt sitting in the hand of God. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Which is a fun image. And if you have a chance to think of naked Brad Pitt and sitting in the hand of God on a nude beach, I mean. Enjoy. <laughs> so that brings to another point of this whole idea of gods and fathers. <laughs> and the irony. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this false dichotomy. Okay, the, the, do you want to go with that? I, well, I think it is. It's a false dichotomy that Tyler sets up. He's like, okay, so your father is your form of God. How freaking head and normative of you. Fine. And then... <laughs> And so then if your father leaves you, abandons you, or doesn't care about you, then that what does that say about God? And I'm like, it doesn't say anything about God, but fine. Okay, like in your little metaphor. And then he goes on like, da-da-da-da-da, we've been raised by women. I don't think a woman is really what I need. I'm thinking, okay, but dude, it's not the women who abandon you. It's the men. It's the father. It's the, it's the guys who abandon you. So maybe don't be angry at the women. Hold on. So then what we have is we have this men who have abandoned you and you don't like it. You're like, men are, you know, the, the father God is bad, you know, so screw that, blah, blah, blah. But then what does Tyler do? Tyler becomes the all-knowing God father to all these other men. Like, he's like, patriarchy is bad. 
So I'm going to live in patriarchy and use this tool for my own benefit. But how you you better not rebel against me. Don't do anything that I don't want you to do. Do not question authority. Exactly. Don't question authority. Don't ask questions. You're going to get castrated. I will take away your manhood because... So, I mean, talk about extreme irony. And also, like, this the false dichotomy of, like, you're either with me or against me. You're either, like, a god or you're not. So there's the thing with, you know, we're raised by women and you have Bob. And Bob is the nurturer. Bob doesn't ever abandon him. Jack. Jack abandons Bob to go with Tyler. But then there's that scene in the movie where Tyler leaves and it is probably verbatim what his father said when he left Jack. Because at the end he even says, you know, see you later champ and pats him on the head. So that that whole thing about the fathers leaving and abandoning and, and how they're they're trying to find their fathers and that to By me basically is, becoming their fathers. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot in the book, and I have like a ton of quotes here, of bad attention is better than no attention. And so they all feel like they're alone, that they have no attention, even though at the beginning, Jack acknowledges, you know, he is kind of on the top of the food chain when it comes to, you know, he's this is white male. That's He's got all the advantages, and he's still unhappy. And it reminds me a lot of uh, the feminine mystique of these women who were supposed to be happy. Well, I have my kids. I have my husband. I have my house. I'm supposed to be happy. Why the fuck am I not happy? Well, and I think that speaks to the time of when this book and the movie were made. We were coming out. It was like Gen X and the beginning of millennials, but it was more like the idea of the boomers had this this path, but the rules of manhood and the rules of what works in society are changing and things are becoming more politically correct and um or um populations that have not been treated equally are like clamoring for rights and things are changing we talked about this last week this is also the start of chiclet so you have a lot of chiclet books right 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 but okay so a lot of things are changing and we, we've got these paths by our boomer parents but we don't want those we want to reject those paths but we don't really know where to go. Like we don't have another thing. So like there's struggle there and there's like, who am I? And how do I fit into this new world? This is a lot of the graduate. This is the 1990, 1999 version of the graduate of I am supposed to be an adult in this society and I don't fit in. I don't get it. It doesn't work for me. Right. And there's a lot of prosperity happening. You know, we got the dot com booming happening in the late nineties. If you, you know, it, it was, it was easy for a lot of people in a lot of ways, you know? And so like, okay, but now what, what do we do? And then you had people who are having like, you know, midlife crisis at age 27, you know, cause they didn't know. And so that's sympathetic. I can totally sympathize with that. And that's definitely a product of the time it's, but it is a small subset of the population who was dealing with that because, you know, there's still a lot of people struggling. There was still a lot of disenfranchised populations and, you know, this, this book, like you said, it is very much the angry young white man thing. It's not, you know, even like in the fight clubs, there's a couple of old guys, there's a couple of people of color, but it's predominantly angry young white men who are, who are doing this because they're like trying to find their plate, which is of course why it resonates so well with the MRAs and people like that. But to, to your response, like, yes, there was the beginning of Chiclet. Women were reading, women were writing, women were, you know, getting together and all of this stuff. And so one of Chuck Palahniuk's exciting quotes is, 
is about how he w- went to bookstores and he saw that there was like the Joy Luck Club and like mm-hmm. a, how to make an American quilt. And he was like, huh, there's no books for men about men. So, you know, we need to have books for men about men, ignoring for the, you know, the, the most of history. Most of history has been books about men, about men. But fine, you know, like I would just, I mean, oh my God, J.K. Rowling had to write as J.K. Rowling because women authors are still not taken as seriously as men authors, especially in certain categories like fantasy and especially in the 90s, right? Like this is just. So I do not grant your freaking premise, Chuck Palahniuk, but fine, whatever. You saw a lot of books in the bookstore, and you felt like men were being left out, so you wrote a book for men. That's what you did. Okay. Right. I want to take a step back, though, and if, if, if somebody's feeling disenfranchised, even if they're at the top of the, you know, the, the social food chain, as it were, there is still a sense of disenfranchisement. I don't want to discount that people have pain, even if they aren't in a disenfranchised group. Sure. That's fair. So No, and I and I yeah. like I said, I get like the whole idea like the world was changing and a lot of people didn't know how to go with this new world. And like they didn't want the path that was laid out, but they didn't have another thing. And so like this is like part of the learning pain or the growing pains of like figuring that out. For sure. So I just had this argument with somebody over white privilege and you know, obviously he's a white guy going, Well, if you're saying white privilege, obviously you're despairing white people. No, it's not that. You can still have a terrible life. You can still have challenges and be white. That's not the point. It's just you have you don't have the added challenges that women have, or you know, especially black women or Hispanic women or Hispanic men. There are challenges you don't face because you're white. Right. And so that's the thing with disenfranchised white guys is there is a pain there that is obviously needing to attach to something and to, to find a way. So I don't want to, to take away from that because there, there's still that problem. So one of the things that they were looking at, um, and I'm talking about Pal Nook here, you're raised and, you know, we were raised with television, which was something that wasn't done with the baby boomers. I mean, they, they had whatever they had. Uh, so we were raised on commercials. We were raised that, you know, a consumer life will make you happy. This is your spiritual fulfillment. And it's just, you know, a trip looking at commercials sometimes and going, wow. So if I have a washer, I should dance around and be happy because that's the thing that will fulfill me in life. Right. So yeah, I do get this. You know, this is why I like, um, the, the artist Bansky is he's all about this anti-consumerist mentality. And right. There is this irony that, yes, he's selling books. Uh, Bansky is making a living off of his art somehow. But I, I, I get that part of Tyler. I get that part of being fed up of our culture is something that we have been sold. Mickey Mouse is our culture. And it's, it's a commodity that we're being sold. And so where are we as a culture? What is our culture if it isn't McDonald's and Mickey Mouse? Agreed. And I think that that is why he reaches so many people, you know? Yeah. And, so, and, and so if you stop at the bar where he's like, you don't are more than the sum of your parts. You're more than your job. Like whatever, man. And then like, you know, you don't need all that shit. Like, that's fine. You can move on, do something else. That's fine. You get me until there. But when you take the next step of, you know, vandalizing, van- well, and then hurting people mm-hmm. like, and it's like, we're going to destroy this building. Um, don't worry. We've made sure there's nobody's in the building. 
Where the fuck do you think that building's gonna go? It's not going to just disappear. It's gonna fall on people. There's other people. Like, so, like, this is the thing. Like, Tyler doesn't think it through. And, you know, he's like, okay, so this is bad. We destroy it without thinking about the next step. Okay, well, where is the building going to fall? What about the people in the other buildings? What about all those people who don't have jobs now? Or all of the, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, all of this stuff. They put up a a sign that says, mortar oil will fertilize your garden. Mm -hmm. Like, that's doing massive damage that doesn't go away anytime soon. Well, and just destructive for the sake of being destructive. I'm going to pee in your soup. Because then I get off on knowing that you're you're eating my pee, uh, and like on one hand you're like okay, but that's guerrilla warfare. That's like the poor, you know, rising up against the rich and the you know establishment. And you're like okay, I can kind of get it, and it's gross, but I mean, well, but then you have what the hell did those children ever do to you, Tyler? You're gonna like traumatize them with like porn and stuff in the middle of their of their kids' movies? Like that's just that's just mean for the sake of being mean. To me, it's directionlessness. Okay, you peed in somebody's soup. Great. What does that accomplish, really? Other than you get your little sense of vengeance. It doesn't do anything to change society. It doesn't do anything to change society. And it really doesn't do anything to the people who ate it. Because they don't know. In the book, it was, it was worse because what he did was he slipped a note to, they were, they were catering at a fancy people's house and he slipped a note to the hostess saying that somebody had peed in one of her many perfume bottles and she had no idea which perfume bottle. Yeah, she's devastated by it. Well, she's devastated because she feels very portrayed. Like, who of my friends would hate me enough to do this? It's not even as much of like, this is a gross thing, but somebody hates me enough to do this to me. Like, that is very hurtful. You know, it's not a random act of violence. Like somebody is being malicious and wants me to suffer because I don't know which one it is. So it's like mental torment now. It's torture. Like, and not just the visceral, I'm going to have to throw away all of my perfume because I don't know which one's been peed in, but also like somebody hates me. And that's a horrible feeling. And so like, because Tyler feels like the world hates him. Which, you know, maybe the world does for a good reason, Tyler. Whatever. Um, like, so that's how he's going to... If you hate me, I'm going to make you feel like somebody hates you. And so that's his his fight. But in the movie, that's not there. They, they leave that part out. And it's just, let's just fart on things and pee on things. And, oh, probably jack off in the cream of mushroom soup or what, or the clam chowder. Oh, my God. It's like... Why? Oh, God. So, yep, that's where you lose me. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that's what gets me is the direction. I'm angry, and so I'm going to take it out on random people who did me no wrong. Yeah. But I get the anger. I get why he's upset. I, I, in a lot of ways, I, I feel the same of... I, I had this huge issue for a while where a Beatles song was used to sell, you know, crap. Because Michael Jackson bought the rights to a lot of the Beatles songs. Beatles were not about that. So, like, Revolution, I think... I think it was Revolution used to sell Nike shoes. And the whole point of that song was anti-consumerism and anti-establishment and, you know, anti-Nike bullshit. And so it really pissed me off. And people were like, just relax, Jen. What the fuck? I mean, just chill. It's it's a song. It's a commercial. I'm like, no, but you're selling out the things that mean everything. So there is that scene in the movie where they are destroying cars. They're just, like, wrecking them. And they skip one that's kind of a little bit older and cheaper because, well, this person's not being consumerist because they have an old junky car because they can't afford better, probably. But then they really go after this the redone 60s bug because the original bug, it, it was meant to be the kind of the flower child car. And now because of baby boomer nostalgia, it was brought back. It's expensive. It just completely destroys the original intent of the car. 
So I get his anger. I totally get that. I just think there are better ways to go about it. Indeed. Yeah. So that's um, our feminist progressive <laughs> attitudes yep. on this. And we might be totally missing the point because this is our perspective in life. But then, you know, there's a billion essays out there. There's lots of stuff to look at. And this is just another addition to the pool. I think it's good to get multiple perspectives. Okay. I'm getting a look. I mean, multiple perspectives are fine, but I, I you know, some people are just wrong. <laughs> And I don't think you have to give even time to uh, people with whatever. That's a different rant, actually. Okay. So Marla has a line in the book, which that's is... in the movie. That's yeah. changed in the movie. I'm in, glad they changed it. Uh, I don't know. In the book, she says, I want to have your abortions, which to me is like, I'm going to try to be crass for the sake of being crass. And also, I don't want to have protected sex. and But I certainly don't want to procreate with you. And there, okay, so fine, weird, but sure. In the movie, she says... I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Which is way more disturbing than I want to have unprotected sex and then, you know, whatever. Like, I don't care no, about the consequences. The, 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 the arguments that are coming out right now with the anti-abortion groups, I, I'm just glad that they changed that line because of that. Because people would point to that and go, oh, yeah, see, this is well, what women okay, want. okay, in 1999, they yeah. probably would have anyways. But no, I... It is still, more disturbing. No, it is way more disturbing because, okay, first of all, let's dissect this line. I haven't been... First of all, she has just been fucked in a good way. That's like, that is the important beginning of this. Like, she has enjoyed herself. Yes. So then she says, I have not been fucked like that. Since grade school, implying a few things. One, that when she was in grade school, she got fucked. Two, when she was in grade school and got fucked, she enjoyed it. Okay, multiple problems. One, you should not be fucking girls in grade school. Girls in grade school should have nothing to do with fucking of any way, shape, or form. Gonna just lay that out there. Second of all, enjoying it or brainwashed into enjoying it or you know what the hell and then i feel like i feel like maybe like this line is supposed to give us a clue i know it was like ad-libbed on set so like nobody gets too much thought into it but here's the thing what it does is it sets up a reason for marla marla was obviously sexually traumatized as a child marla is recovering from that trauma and she is one of those sex abuse victims who's left behind who is like, you know, like you were talking about before, but now she's all grown up. Okay, not everybody who's abused as a child grows up to be a Marla, but we're not giving other examples. And all we really know about Marla's history is this. This is our extent. And in the book, we have, she has a mom who's, you know, obsessed with like her looks. And that's basically it. Like we don't get a lot. There's not, there's not much information to go on. So the fact that they allowed this ad-libbed, you know, bit of dialogue that gives us a whole backstory. And that's all we get of her. Like, I find that very unsettling. So this goes to one of the questions about Palinuk. For the most part, I don't think he means a lot of what he's writing. And so I don't take it that seriously. You know, it's a little bit like he's writing a cartoon. So it goes to the question of the violence in the film. A lot of people are disturbed by the violence. But there's the same level of violence in a Schwarzenegger film that nobody gets up in arms about. So is it the realism of the violence? Because, I don't know, when I see, like, actual damage, when you see that it, it looks real and it feels real, it's more disturbing than the cartoon stuff that was really popular in the 80s. Yeah, well, we had a lot of bloodless violence at one point in our cinema and TV shows and stuff. People get shot, they fall off screen, we don't really see it. 
Well, like, um, I think it was the first nightmare on Elm Street. There's like a flood of blood going up. So is that more disturbing than, uh, was it 125 hour, whatever that film was? I don't want horror, so I cannot weigh in on any of what you're saying, (laughs) but gross. Um, I do think, like, so the violence in here was, is very visceral and it is very close up and it, 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 it dwells on it and it's, it's like, it's but not. It's a lot more realistic. Fist fights are clumsy and okay, awkward. It is not realistic. Um, the first fight is very flail heavy and that's hilarious. You know, it's funny and blah, blah, blah. And it looks very real because it is all blah, 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 blah. Later on with the cinematography and like the close up and some, and I'm sorry. Maybe you do or don't know this, but if you punch someone the way that those guys were punching people, your hand will break. Like, mm. if you, unless you have a brick or a roll of quarters in your hand, there's, there, nobody had broken fingers. Everybody had broken noses. Everybody had, like, the teeth thing. Fine. Whatever. That's, like, superficial. And the sound effect Foley guys were having a great time. Bam, bam, bam. But, like, nobody broke their hands. So, By the way, punching somebody in the face is a great way to break your hand. That's my point. Yeah. Nobody broke their hands. Nobody broke their fingers. Nobody had, like, and then, like, they are fine. They're typing. They're doing all of their regular stuff. So, like, note to people, punch people in the in the neck or something, don't punch him in the the ear. Yeah. No. But it's like that first fight is really, (laughs) because fist fights are clumsy and ridiculous to watch. People don't know how to fight. It's never, it's never the martial arts film. Right. And this makes, it it does glorify it a little bit, but as we go on, because then it is tight shots and visceral and we're just seeing the blood and we're hearing the things and it's, it's, you know, everyone's yelling and it's all slappy and blah and gross and, Okay, so here's a, a scene that they shot two different ways. It's the one where he just goes after Angel Face, mm-hmm. and he wants to destroy something beautiful. Major theme in the book is, I want to, you know, wipe my ass with Mona Lisa. So he destroys Angel, and they shot this two ways. And the first one, nobody reacted any differently. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the second one, there's judgments around. Like, yeah. everyone kind of stops because he's breaking one of the rules. If somebody passes out, if they go limp, they're supposed they to out. stop. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, you, you violated the rules. And they all get kind of judgy. Although, although there's no consequences for breaking the rules. Just going to point that out. Yeah. Everyone just goes, oh, you went too far. The audience opinion of that scene just vastly different based on how that version was shot. So if there's no judgment, they were like, yeah, it's just a fight, whatever. When there was judgment, oh, that scene went too far. That was too violent. So I always thought that was really fascinating, how you control an audience reaction just from the reaction of the people that are around in the set. Mm, Well, because you have the everyman person. Like, we get our clues from how people react, whether or not something is good or bad. Yeah, but But the level of violence wasn't any different. So it's not the violence itself. No, but again, we're getting our clues about how we're supposed to react based on the group mentality of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, but objectively, the violence isn't any different. It's just our clues to how we should perceive that violence is different. Right. So when I'm looking at like an 80s, you know, like Roadhouse or something, you know, something really stupid where there's supposed to be violence, but it's all cartoony, you don't take it that seriously until you're told to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wonder about Palinuk. The reason why Palinuk is palatable is because it doesn't feel like he really means it. And it's it's like the grade school thing. People laugh at that because they don't take it seriously. It's too outrageous. It's too silly. And so if that does happen, they're distanced from it. And that's why I wonder about rape culture and sexual harassment of, well, men are supposed to be sexually forward. You're supposed to do this sort of thing. You know, damn the consequences of it. 
So it's that kind of distance. I don't take Marla that seriously when she says that. It's one of those lines. And I wonder about that later on of exactly what you said. Well, wait a second. There there are implications here. But if you don't take her seriously, all those implications are just, oh, that was funny. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's funny, but yes. It- well, it was, it was a laugh line. It did get laughs from the audience because it's oh. so... It's okay. such an outrageous thing to say. So awful that it got laugh lines in the audience. It's just horrifying, first of all. That's fucking rape culture. I will also note that that is one of the only times when Tyler goes, whoa, because he does. He's like, that's fucked up. Like, even Tyler's like, not cool, dude. Like, you've gone, there's there's a thing here. Tyler in his pink fuzzy robe is like, nope. You know? <laughs> like, okay. So, yeah, another thing that got laugh lines in the, in the audience um, when I saw this in the movie theater in 1999 was when our character walked around, uh, set our main character, Edward Norton, says to his boss, what if I I walked around with an AR, blah, blah, blah. And I shot everybody in the office. I could just stalk around with my big ass gun and I could kill everybody. And everyone's like, ha, 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 ha. holy crap. Like that line does not age well. Because, no, it doesn't. Holy crap. <laughs> well, that's what I've seen about the abortion line is right now. That would have been one of those lines that I, I could see certain groups trotting out and going, oh, this is what women do. I'm like, no, it was movie. It was movie. It was movie. There's not real life. I'm just saying, like, that line wouldn't have played it. Yeah. I mean, other than, a, like, the fact that there's a payphone the, and there are no cell phones, like, this, you know, it could be pretty timeless. Like, they, we don't know the name of the city that they're in. You know, there's a lot of stuff that is, that works, that is universal. And, you know, especially those feelings of anger and not knowing where you are. Just, I do love, you know, I am Jack's raging jealousy. I, I, yeah, that, that's a, that's one of the best parts that I can take away from this. Is, yeah, is it's the humor of that. It's disassociation, and yet it's so honest about how you feel because you're not supposed to acknowledge jealousy and rage and anger and stuff. And yeah, the well, way he all has the, to do it. All the feelings. Yeah, I am Kalia's foot cramp of frustration. <laughs> Laura Miller of Salon wrote a scathing review of of Diary, but it was another Polonix. But she says this about Polonix books. They traffic in the half-baked nihilism of a stoned high school student who's just discovered Nietzsche and Nine Inch Nails. Everything even remotely clever in them has been done before and better by someone else. Ouch. Yep. I like you, Laura. I like Laura, too. (sighs) Okay. Do you have any... I mean, I got some other random little things, but that's basically... Let's see. Um, I, the men hugging and crying in the support groups, they're only able to get comfort and help from other men. And it's fucked up when Marla, the non-man, shows up. So like, it was like their only time when they're in their new place of being not men because they don't have their balls anymore could actually get support with men, with other men. And then that's like also with the space monkeys being just men with other men. Like we don't need... Except apparently Tyler still has Marla, so I guess the cult leader gets to sleep around, but nobody else. Well, always. Always. Um, here's a little background. So uh, Tyler is based on a Walt Disney character. Tyler goes to the circus. And then Durden was a co-worker of Palinix who left the company under a dark cloud of sexual harassment rumors. Mm-hmm. That really does speak to what Tyler is. One of the things I loved going back is his name was Robert Paulson and how this misinterpretation gets amplified and how much of that do we have in religion where somebody will take one tiny little bible quote mm-hmm. and that becomes like you forget there's the rest of the book and that's the same with the quran that's the same with uh, the torah or you know almost any religious book and you can have that with politics as well but you have 
sort of this iconoclast of somebody saying, oh, here's a thing. And then that little bit gets misinterpreted and... It gets a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating because all these guys who are trying to find an identity are losing their identity in becoming space monkeys. Yes. Even the priest. The priest gets corrupted. Okay, so that scene after the priest and the mechanic fight each other, and they hug each other at the end. Palinuk had this thing where afterwards people would go up to him and say that was a really powerful scene, just because there is that emotional connection even through this fight, which, I don't know, maybe that's a uniquely male thing to go through. I feel like what it is is a shared adrenaline spike. Yeah. Which is the same thing with, like, a car crash. And you got to remember, like, the movie Crash, which was all about people getting into car crashes so they could get off, yes. had just come out. I mean, like, there's... It's a, different from the race film, by the way. Yes, because the one I'm referencing, like I just James said, Bader. just came out mm-hmm. in 1997, I think. Um, so, like, I mean, there's... A, but that, that's that adrenaline thing. Like, really, Tyler's just an adrenaline junkie, you know? It's like, like jumping out of planes or... Or doing anything else. It could have been, like, I keep coming back to this. It could have been, like, shooting heroin, you know? Like, it gets you to a thing, and then you see God, or you are God, or whatever. And, like, you have this shared experience with other people. I Yeah, so the adrenaline junkie. Do you think it's interesting at the end, Tyler's head is also shaved at the very end? Because now he's become part space monkey, but also, like, it's like... He's the leader, but he's also a follower. And So there's a background note that Tyler gets better looking through the film and Edward gets more beat up through the film. As I was watching, oh. it's like, there's, it's not... I don't agree with that. Yeah, it's not that much there, but that was one of the things I guess well, he was trying to do. trying to do that. He- so Fight Club, the idea for the book was based on a real-life event where Palinuk was out camping and there was... Uh, an issue with noise. So there was another group that sat next to them, or they were in the campsite next to them. They had their their radios on all night, and they were blasting music and sound, and he got really upset. They fought, and then for the next three months, people would avoid looking at him in the face. Because he was marked. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was one of those cultural interests of his like well how was your weekend and you're staring at this person with two black eyes going oh boring i didn't do anything uh i have a friend who does sword fighting as you know one of her hobbies and she gets beat up a lot so she'll come in to work she works at a hospital and she'll have black eyes and all these bruises and whatnot and she's very physical so she does a lot of these physical things and people keep coming up to her um you know if, if someone's abusing you we can help so she gets that a lot which She's like, no, no, that's really not a problem. Trust me. But that's good that people <laughs> It's are... good that people are, are trying to take care of her, but it's also funny that it's very much the opposite of what they think it is. Right. But no, it's a good thing. If you ever see a woman with like bruises all or over. Or a man. Or a man. Yes. So good. good to ask. Definitely. I know that I, he wrote, it was a short story. It's chapter six. It was the original short story. I went back and just read just chapter six, and that was just the bit with him the bloody teeth and the microscoped guy and and the little bit of that that just that scene where he's thinking about fight club it was the original short story so no marla um not really a whole lot of tyler and i have to say that i liked it as a short story mm-hmm. it left me wanting more as opposed to being like oh my god i feel like this got really repetitive um, like, especially in the book when he's realizing that he's Tyler, my God, we have 10 pages of that. Oh my God, I'm Tyler. Oh my God, I'm Tyler. Oh my God, Tyler am I. Like, it just <laughs> goes on and on and on and on. And I was like, oh my God, get to the point, get to the point. Whatever. 
Yeah, again, the, because of the difference in the ending, I felt the book was more of a cautionary tale, the movie was more of a romantic view, and didn't show enough of the consequences. So, I mean, so in that case, it's not any surprise to me that people don't really think things through. People want someone to blame. They want... They, they, they glommed onto this because, you know, I don't think the movie did a good enough job of, of showing Tyler as the bad guy or, or, you know, in some ways. And I get it. Like, he died. I get it. But the everything fell over and um, the narrator's kind of in a good place. And Marla's there and they're holding hands and the pixies come on and you're like, yeah, man. So, like, I just... I kind of wish that the ending had been the book ending where he's like in a mental institution and he's like, oh my God, life is really fucked up. And now I'm here and I'm safe and I'm scared. And then every now and then an orderly comes by with a bandaged nose and is like, we're waiting for you, sir. Don't worry, sir. We're fine. Like that's hella creepy and way better. I would have loved that as a better ending. I think the ending, like it's intentionally ambiguous. You're seeing these buildings collapse and you, you can start calculating all the damage that's being done. It's a false positive. You have the Pixies music come on. I think it's just because you don't want to leave the theater in this total depressing drag. And so it, it is. That would have resonated more. Yeah. But it's also like, how do you leave the film? Do you leave it going, oh my God, I just want to kill myself now? Or do you leave it going, you know, thinking of the, the guitar from, you know, Frank Black and going, oh yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, I think that kind of goes to what's the point. If the point of the movie or whatever your piece of art is to make people go, oh, crap, I've just questioned my whole life and I really need to go home and think about my choices, then that's okay to leave people leaving the theater going, oh, crap, I've just questioned my whole life and I need to think about my choices. But you have it end on a rousing, well, I mean, technically, the film ends with a penis blip because that's (laughs) our last shot, which to me is kind of like maybe Tyler's going to come back because he is the ultimate dick. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, to me, and I like ambiguous endings. I think it would have been more ambiguous and way creepier and would have made the point more if it had been the book ending. I, That's also, my opinion. I wonder about that with the whole idea of, you know, you're, you're trying to take responsibility for your life. And that's the problem that the narrator has is that he's not taking responsibility. He likes Marla, but he won't accept that he likes her. He's having these issues with stress and how his job is wearing him down because he is killing people in some ways because he won't order a recall. That's dangerous if it doesn't help the bottom line. I find that scene with the gas clerk attendant to be really fascinating of we're going to kill you unless you go back and become a veterinarian because that's what you're supposed to do. And so how much of this, how much of this anger is just our own inability to face up to our lives? Hmm. Well, that goes to, you know, we're, we're these, these, we're supposed to be adults. We're still children. It's that graduate idea of what does it mean to be an adult in our culture? We're sold this. It's not fulfilling. So what are we left with and having to create that meaning? Right. So self-improvement is masturbation, but you better go to school and become a vet or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Uh, no. And also, fuck you. Well, that's also, like, Tyler is an anarchist to the extreme of he... He's, he doesn't think anything through. He's yeah. not a good... Don't follow him. Which and is yet my he point. does think things through. Well, he is a, a master planner. He he's can, a master planner, but he doesn't think about the consequences of his actions mm. and how they affect other people. Anyways, okay. I'm so done. <laughs> <laughs> I am Kaylee's enraged sense of wanting to be done. Um, <laughs> was it worth your time? Yes, no. Real quick. Uh, it was worth my time back in 1999. It was worth my time when I was working as a retail clerk, you know, selling people calendars and reading this on, on 
my breaks. I'd say, yeah, it's worth your time. It's worth your time to go through and analyze it. And what does it what did it mean in 1999? What does it mean today? The, the movie and the book? Yeah. And also, I, I go back to this, is that authoritarianism, which Tyler represents, is ultimately self-destructive. And that is something that we are very much still facing today. Mm-hmm. It's, it's on the rise. And what does this ultimately mean? So, yeah, I think in terms of that, it is worth your time. It is worth your time to, to reconsider this. And the film is fun if you're in the mood for it. Yes. You definitely have to be in the mood for it. I would say the, yeah. the film was worth my time when I saw it because it was a very interesting film, and you it's, can watch it like twenty different times to get something new each time. Yeah, you, you definitely it, it. Its repeatability factor is high. I yeah. get that, although you don't get the same twist because you just can't. But now you get to watch it like being in the know, which is kind of fun. Um, so yeah, I would say, and I think the film did a good job in a lot of ways of what it was trying to do. I've I've already made my complaints. So I don't need to rehash them all. The book is not a terribly long read. It's, uh, but it did make me feel gross afterwards. Like I felt like I needed to take a shower. So, and get that fancy soap. Yeah, get that fancy, fancy soap. Today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast is brought to you by patrons. If you are a patron, thank you very much. And if you're not a patron, please become a patron. A dollar a month or five dollars if you're feeling especially generous will help us continue to make this exciting show for you. And we are going to go on summer break. Pretty soon, yeah. will, Well, this is our last episode for the summer. So uh, no episodes in August, but we will see you all back in September of 2019. Um, Lord willing, the creeks don't rise. Thanks so much. Bye.